Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah with the Cognitive Canine, and this is a bonus episode. Um, I've been getting a lot of email questions, and rather than answer them all, <laughs> um, because most of the questions are kind of in the same categories, I figured I would go ahead and talk about some of those topics here um, in just a little bonus episode. So we're going to get back to Prime next week with part two on him. Um, we're not going to talk about him today. So first of all, I'm getting a ton of questions about raw diets for dogs. And here's the deal, you guys. I can't really answer those questions, the specific questions that you're asking me because I'm not a vet and I'm not a nutritionist. So what I am going to say, um, basically some of the questions are, you know, some people have asked specifically, what do I feed? Can I give them a recipe? That kind of thing. No, and I can't give you a recipe. I can tell you that I generally feed what's called a prey model diet. And I'm just going to say that Google is your friend here. Go ahead and check out what other people are feeding. There's a lot of Facebook groups of people who feed raw. Um, there's a lot of different websites. There's a lot of different books. One book that helped me in the very beginning was uh, Raw and Natural Nutrition for Dogs by Lou Olson, um, who's a PhD nutritionist. So um, you guys could check that out. Somebody else did ask about bones because I do mention um, giving the dogs raw bones to chew on all the time. I will make a recommendation in that area. These are frozen raw bones. Often they are meaty bones, uh, or I'm sorry, marrow bones. So those are kind of those, you know, long bones of a cow or a bison, um, or maybe even an elk if you're lucky. And those are, you know, they're very fatty. That's what bone marrow is. So if your dog has a hard time tolerating fat, they might have a hard time with them. I also really like beef kneecaps <laughs> lately. They, Vital Essentials has a frozen beef kneecap that is my favorite as of right now. Um, goes without saying I hope, but all of that should be supervised and all of that should be, you know, at your own discretion. So again, not a vet, not a nutritionist. Uh, one person did say that her dog's a therapy dog and that the therapy dog organization doesn't allow its certified dogs to be fed a raw diet. And all I have to say to that is, you know, you make your own choices. Most of my clients' dogs are not therapy dogs because most of my clients' dogs have behavior problems that would stop them from being therapy dogs. So um, if you've got a therapy dog and you want to feed them the best way possible, I would say, you know, you make amends with whatever your organization's rules are. As well as don't forget about cooked diets. I think a fresh food diet is best. I don't think it has to be raw for it to be amazing. I have it be raw because that's the easiest way for me to do it. Um, so anyway, lots of information out there. I'm probably going to continue to get emails about raw diets. And I'm going to continue to give vague answers um, if I answer at all. I may just shoot you over to this podcast. So just know that I'm actually not an expert on this in any way, shape, or form. I've just been doing it a long time, but I learned from um, some mentors who had been doing it a long time themselves. My primary source of information was actually somebody I know who had been breeding and showing dogs for about 15 years, and she'd been feeding raw for the same length of time. And so learning from her what worked, 
was a big one for me. So I recommend doing that. Um, there actually are veterinarians out there too who are well versed in raw diets. They're rare, but they exist. So you could seek them out as well. Okay, the next little area that a lot of people are asking about, I mentioned puzzle toys a lot for enrichment and they're wanting to know what kind do I like? Um, what do I do specifically? And that's a good question. So brands that I like, um, if you're just doing some kind of dry treat or even kibble, the Snoop by Planet Dog is a really great toy. You just put some kibble in it and go. Um, I use a lot of um, dry, dried raw treats that go in that really nicely. So that's one thing that I do. The Kong, of course, is kind of the gold standard. It's been around a really long time. The Kong just takes a little bit more work. I like to stuff Kongs with... Um, a variety of different things and if you just kind of google kong stuff you guys you're gonna find a lot of different options so i stuff it with whatever and then i freeze it so i typically usually just buy some really high-end canned dog food and stuff it with that and then freeze it very easy it takes a long time for the dogs to eat and it is basically a meal um, and then I like homemade puzzles actually the best and the reason is you can change it up and you can um, cater whatever the needs are of the dog in front of you. So cater to those needs. So um, I am a big fan of saving if you drink anything out of plastic bottles. Um, you can save those bottles and kind of shove them in a, in a big Tupperware container and have food all up underneath them. So the dogs have to kind of push the bottles out of the way to get to the food and find the food. So they've got to push stuff around and sniff around to find it. Um, I also like for my young performance dogs who are not sound sensitive, I like to do what I call noisy lunch. So I put a lot of um, their meals just in a metal bowl that's inside a metal pan that's on top of another metal pan or something like that. So it clangs around as they're eating and they just kind of desensitize to metal clanging. So that's really good for especially young dogs who are not sound sensitive. If your dog is worried about noise and your dog's not going to eat if you do that, then definitely do not do that. Um, there's honestly a ton of them. I saw, I saw one on the internet where somebody had taken a muffin tin and put food in all the little muffin cups and then had put tennis balls inside each one. So the dog had to come and move the tennis balls out to get the food. Obviously, some, for some dogs, that's going to be a piece of cake and it's going to be over in a second. But for other dogs, it's going to be really tough. I have a Sheltie that I worked with who we literally put food and muffin tins and then we put just bunched up Kleenex on top of the food and let her figure that out and that was enough of a puzzle for her. So absolutely cater it to your dog's needs. Um, if you are having a lazy day, you can just use a slow bowl or slow feeder. So those are those feeders that kind of look like a labyrinth and you put the food down in the crevices. Um, when Felix was a puppy, he usually ate a meal a day. It was just kind of a ground raw with some goat's milk um, in that. And that was at least one meal a day. And I would train for the other two meals. So that's something that you guys can do. A um, couple other people had asked about fear periods. We haven't really hit on fear periods a whole lot in the podcast. Um, so we might hit on that in more detail at some time. Um, all I want to say is that Absolutely, yes, dogs go through fear periods. There are some generalized rules for when those happen, but they tend not to be hard and fast rules. The only one that I think is pretty set in stone um, is usually the eight week 
fear period, but even still talk to 10 different breeders. They're going to give you 10 different answers on that. So um, that's just kind of my observation. Other than that, I usually find that, yes, they go through a major one when they're really young, um, about eight to nine weeks. And then they might go through another major one sometime between six and nine months. And then another major one between like 12 months and 18 months um, or sometimes sometimes 12 months in a year. Um, what's important for you is to just know that if a dog is experiencing fear, you need to respect that. I don't care how old they are. I don't care if they might be in a fear period or not. Respect it if they're scared. Um, forcing a dog into a fearful situation or towards something that they are afraid of is never the right answer. It doesn't matter if they're in a fear period or not. If they're in a fear period and you do that, you're really going to shoot yourself in the foot. That's kind of the only difference. It's never, it's never a good idea. It's an especially bad idea if they're in a developmental period that is telling them to have a heightened uh, fear response. So all I would say on that, you know, if your dog seems to be going, if your dog is very young and seems to be going through a fear period, I would be avoiding things that might be very important to you that the dog does not associate a fear response with. So for instance, Iggy went through a pretty funky, weird fear period um, when she was actually four and a half, five months of age-ish. This is when she, this is the first time in her life that I saw her be afraid of and have reactions towards other dogs. And I was traveling out of town to an agility trial um, and I literally didn't bring her in the building once the entire weekend. And of course, everybody wanted to know why, what's wrong with my puppy, uh, why isn't she in here, so quote, socializing. And um, I just told her that the right, I just told them that the right choice for her that weekend was to not be in there. And I am still so happy that I did that because now knowing her and knowing how quickly she makes a bad association. Um, I'm really happy that I knew enough to not take her in there and try to quote, work through it the way that a lot of people would. I just let it ride. And then when she was about seven months old, she was better and she went back into agility trials again um, to keep working on that stuff. So just respect that dogs go through different uh, levels of fear throughout their development and that all fear needs to be respected. And then finally, um, I've had a few questions on arousal states in performance dogs and kind of what's normal and what's not. And a lot of these people are telling me, you know, a lot of details about what seems to be normal with their dogs. And um, I did mention in the first episode, you know, testing um, testing the dog's mouth on food and that kind of thing to see their what their state of mind is and that kind of thing. Um, and I did mention that that's pretty individual with some baseline rules. And all I want to say is that, you know, we don't even have, begin to have time right now, especially in this little bonus episode, to talk about um, optimal or less than ideal arousal states in performance dogs because it really could be a six-week course, and I teach it in a two-day workshop as well. And in the two days, we cover a lot of ground, but we don't cover it all because it's impossible to. So understanding adrenaline and how it works in the dog's body, understanding anxiety and how it works in the dog's body, 
these are really important things for you to kind of take on as an area of study, I think, if you are going to be doing any dog sports with your dog. Um, I am teaching a two-day workshop that I'm calling Worked Up on arousal and sport dogs in Sumner, Washington. Um, that's going to be at It's a Dog's World and that's in February. So if you want any information on that or you want to sign up, um, you can sign up at the Dogs World website, which is dogsworldtraining.com, I think. <laughs> um, and you can always shoot me an email about that as well. So, and if, if Washington is too far away from you, shoot me an email and let's see about having me come out wherever you are. Um, Anyway, you guys, you can keep sending me these questions. Keep sending me whatever you want me to cover. If I don't directly answer your question, um, I'll probably be answering it in the podcast. So just keep listening and you can send those to cogdogradio at gmail.com. Thanks, guys.